All right, well, tonight we are going to go back in time. It is Christmas Day, 800 AD, and for the first time in 400 years, a Western Roman emperor is being crowned. His name is Charlemagne, you may have heard of him before, and his reign is characterized um, by, by a period of Renaissance. Now, this wasn't like the 15th century Italian Renaissance. This was the, the 8th and 9th century Carolignian Renaissance. Say that 10 times fast. Carolignian. Okay, now, it didn't have all that awesome arts that you normally think of as like European high art, but they did. They made some amazing artwork, and they also wrote some amazing books. And I want to share one of those books with you uh, tonight. I, I happen to have brought it with me. Um, it's called The Heliant, okay? And it's really, really cool. Um, it's essentially 71 different songs. And uh, these songs were put together when Charlemagne conquered the Saxons. Now, the Saxons were kind of a warring Germanic tribe who lived in southern England. And uh, they... They were, they were pagans, uh, pagans to the nth degree. Charlemagne fought a 33-year-long war with them, and every year they'd kind of surrender, fake convert to Christianity, and then once they got enough weapons together, they would go to war again, okay? So it, this is kind of the melu in which this book, The Heliand, was written. And in 71 songs, it tells the story of the gospel. But instead of being set in like ancient Palestine, this is set in 9th century Saxony. Jesus is basically a Viking warrior in, in this book, and it is unbelievably epic, okay? It's so good. But one of the things I find so fascinating about this book is its title, the Heliand. Does it sound like a word? It's actually where we get our word heal. When Charlemagne wanted to introduce Jesus to a whole group of pagan people, you know what he said? He said, Jesus, he's the healing one. Not the saving one. Not the one who will forgive you of your sins. He's Heliand, heal, he heals you. I thought, you know, that's pretty cool. He's called, he, it, 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 Jesus in this is called Christ the Healer about 1,500 years before F.F. F. Bosworth's book, Chip. He's called the greatest of all healers. And this is how Charlemagne said, I'm going to introduce Jesus to these pagan people. Now, we're going to fast forward 100 years Okay, so now instead of being in the south of England, we are going to go to medieval Russia. Okay, now it's actually not Russia yet. It's called Kievan Rus, but I'm going to call it Russia for the rest of the night because it's easier to say than Kievan Rus. Okay, so it is, it is the kind of middle of the 10th century. And Vladimir, who I will call Vladimir for the rest of the night because that's also easier, he is the grand prince of Kiev. Now, Vladimir is also a pagan, and for him, paganism hasn't been working out too hot. So he said, I am going to change religions. And so he has all these different people come to him. 
And one of the people who came to him telling him about his religion was a Christian. And this Christian, one of the main things he told Vladimir is, I serve this guy named Jesus and Jesus heals. And Vladimir, he couldn't believe it. So he sent out envoys all across the earth to these different, uh, to these hubs of different religions to see what these religions actually teach. He went to the Muslims and, uh, oh, oh I, I wrote it down. I can't quite remember uh, what they, um, what his envoys said. So he went to the Muslims and they said, his, uh, his envoys said that they had no happiness. There was no happiness in these Islamic countries. Then they went to some kind of, I would call like medieval Western Christian countries, and they went into the churches, and, and these envoys said, you know, we saw all their churches, we saw everything they taught, but, but there was no glory there. There was no power of God there. And then they went to, to the biggest church in the world at that time. It was Agia Sophia in Constantinople. They walk in the doors and they said, we didn't know if we were on heaven or on earth. All we knew was that God was among men. And Vladimir was like, what are you talking about? This sounds so awesome. I'm going to become a Christian. And when he became a Christian, his country, um, in 988 AD, the entire nation of Russia was baptized in one day, and it changed overnight. Politically, socially, economically, educationally, everything changed, even healthcare. Let me read you a quote from the Primary Chronicle which is something about Vladimir's reign. You give healings to pilgrims from other lands who draw near with faith, making the lame to walk, giving sight to the blind, to the sick health, to captives freedom, to prisoners liberty, to the sorrowful consolation, and to the oppressed relief. Now that's a cool quote, but it's not about God. You know who it's about? It's about just two ordinary Christians named Boris and Gleb. Great names, aren't they? So here's the thing. Jesus is introduced as healer to Russia. And then just these no healings start springing up everywhere. From just these totally normal, average, everyday guys. Now, we're going to go back in time again. We're going to go to the fourth century. And now we are in Jerusalem. There's a guy named Cyril. Now, there are lots of cereal, uh, cereals, cereals uh, in, in this period of time. So this is Cyril of Jerusalem. He had a series of lectures that he would give to people uh, before they were baptized. They're called, cleverly enough, Cyril's Catechetical Lectures, okay? Now, I'm going to read you a quote from Lecture 10. Now remember, this is given to, they're not even Christians yet. They haven't even been baptized. They're going to be like baptized in a couple of days. Okay? So, Lecture 10, Cyril of Jerusalem's Catechetical Lectures. Jesus then means among the Hebrews, a Savior. But in the Greek tongue, a healer. Seeing that he is a physician of souls and bodies and a curer of spirits, curing the blind in body and leading minds into light. If any be encompassed with bodily ailments, let him not mistrust, but let him approach. 
for such also does he cure. And let him know that Jesus is the Christ. Now, I don't know if you caught that, but he said in Hebrew, Yeshua means savior. But Jesus does not mean savior in Greek. I have a slide, Ron, could you put my first slide up there? Um, okay, so I'll show you this. Okay, up top, now, I have to warn you. I speak Koine Greek, and I have a Midwest accent, and that is quite the combination, okay? But this first word up there that means healing, it's Iesis, okay? And then Jesus right below that is Iesus. So if you are Greek and you hear Iesus, you think, oh my goodness, this man must heal me. That's the first thing you're going to think. So here we have three radically different cultures. We have like the Saxons in Southern England, basically Vikings, medieval Russians, and then fourth century Romans. And they're all focusing on this idea that Jesus heals. That is what he does. Now I can see by the expression on your faces that you're thinking, this is great, Mark. There are some dead guys who knew that Jesus healed. You know, they're dead. They have beards. Who really, who really cares? You should care for two reasons. The first one is I think we should be slightly encouraged. Why should we be slightly encouraged? Because we're not exactly on the wrong side of either history or doctrine. Don't ever feel like you're alone, like, my goodness, you have this Elijah complex where I'm the only one who believes this and no one else ever believes it and I feel so sorry for myself because no one believes what I teach. No, just other people haven't read as much as you do or learned as much as you do, have they? So, like, like this, is, this guy has a beard and probably believes things we don't believe, but he, we have a similar shared experience about healing. That's kind of cool. But the second reason is ancient Rome, the, the, the pa pagan Russia, and pagan Saxony don't exist anymore. They're all Christian nations. Why? Because Jesus does more than just heal your body, doesn't he? He fixes anything that does not work. Now, all of you have probably seen my little parlor trick before, but I keep these coins on my desk for this very reason, because I never, ever, ever want to forget this truth. I have a coin in my hand. This is a denarius. It was minted in 71 AD, same type of coin that, you know, Jesus would have held when he was given, the, the, uh, talking about the temple tax and those type of things. This coin was minted the year after Titus destroyed the temple. Okay, now Flavius, so it's older than mo a good portion of the New Testament, this little coin I'm holding in my hand. If you want to hold it after the service, you can. Uh, it's kind of fun. Now, if you read Flavius Josephus at all, he's a fun read, uh, and uh, he said that the year, the actual year this coin was minted, 71 AD, Titus and his dad Vespasian had a triumph in, in Rome. Now, what that is, is they basically had a big party uh, saying, we beat the Jews. It was a whole lot of fun. 
And one of the things that Josephus says they did was they literally paraded the scroll of the law down the streets of Rome. The Bible was a spoil of war when this coin was minted. Things did not look good for Christianity. Not good at all. I have another coin. This coin is from 1035. All right? It is still Roman. The Roman Empire actually didn't completely fall until 14, I think 1435, actually, something like that. And uh, so we call it kind of the Eastern Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire, but they didn't. They called themselves Romans. This coin, on the front of it, there is Jesus Christ. He's on the front of this coin. He's holding, his, he's holding the Bible. He's holding his hand out in blessing. And then on the back, in Greek, it says, Jesus Christos Nika, Jesus Christ, Victor. Jesus Christ wins. Okay? Now, why do I keep these on my desk? Because Jesus heals stuff. I heard a guy, he was a Calvinist. He's one of those Calvinists who believes in, um, hmm, how, do, how do I want to put it? In, in like kind of uh, restoring institutions in the country. Uh, he called himself a theonomist. And he said something that, I, that really shocked me. He said, you know, I had faith that God could heal my country, but not my body. His wife was very sick. And she went to a healing meeting one day and she got healed. And it turned this guy's world upside down. Now, that's awesome. However, what if we flip it? What if, how many of us would say we believe God will heal our bodies, but not our nation? They go hand in hand, don't they? There's either way is unbelief. And either way, stinks. You know, unbelief in Greek is one of two words. It's like oligopistis, which means little faith, or apistis, which means like literally you have positioned yourself against faith. It doesn't just mean you're neutral. It means you are actively fighting against what God said to be true. Why would we do that in any area? Why is there an area where we say God can heal here, but he can't here? He can change here, but he can't here. Why do we put God in this box? It's not a good thing to do, is it? I want to show you an example from the scriptures. Tonight we're going to read most of Matthew chapter 17. We're going to start at the end of Matthew chapter 16. I want to show you kind of this example of what happens when, when unbelief kind of gets out of control. So we're going to start Matthew chapter 16 starting in verse 27, and then we're going to read through Matthew 17, verse 6. Then we'll um, go a little further a little later. All right. For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will render to everyone according to their deeds. Verily I tell you, some are standing here who will not have tasted death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom." Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and brought them up into a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as the light. 
And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with them. Peter then said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you want, let us make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While Peter was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were very afraid. Jesus came up and touched them saying, get up and do not be afraid. Lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus alone. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them this order, do not tell anyone what you saw until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. So I think I read there through verse nine. Now this is the story of what? Of the transfiguration, right? Where Jesus is transfigured in front of his disciples. He says to them at the end of, of, at the end of chapter 16, some of you are going to see the very glory of the coming kingdom. And that's what ends up happening. Um, on, on the top of the mount. But that is not all that happens in Matthew chapter 17. There's also something happening at the bottom of the mountain. Let's start in verse 14. When they came to the crowd, a man came to Jesus. He knelt down before him and said, Lord, have mercy on my son. He is an epileptic and suffers terribly, as off, and he often falls into the fire and into the water. And so I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Jesus answered, faithless and perverse generation, how much longer must I be with you? How long must I bear with you? Bring the boy to me. When Jesus rebuked it, the demon went out of the boy and he was cured that hour. Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, why were, you not, why were we not able to cast him out? Jesus replied, because of your unbelief. Amen, I tell you that if you have faith, even like a grain of mustard, you will tell this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. But this kind of spirit does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Now, that's a lot of words. I have a picture for you. Now, I don't know what some of you think of, of like religious art. I kind of think it's interesting because it helps me to see things in a slightly different way. Um, you may have heard of Raphael before. And Raphael, uh, he was not a Ninja Turtle. He actually uh, was a painter in the Renaissance. And the very last painting he did was a 13 foot by nine foot painting of not just the transfiguration, it is all of Matthew chapter 17. Ron, could you give me my, my second slide here? Okay, so this painting, now if it's hard to see, you can just look this up on your phone. It's the transfiguration by Raphael. Now here's, what I'm, here's kind of what's going on in this picture. Up top, you have Jesus, he's kind of all glowy looking. He's at the top of this little mountain and you have the disciples kind of falling down around there. And then below it, everything is dark. They're at the bottom of this mountain. Now, and they're all pointing. They're like pointing in different directions, doing different things. Look at this though. They're, look at where they're looking. Most of them are pointing at the little boy down in the corner, 
who's an epileptic and he's freaking out. Some of them are looking at like the other people in the crowd. A couple of them are pointing up at Jesus, but they're still looking at the kid. Only, there's only one person, possibly two people in this picture who are actually looking up. Okay, one of them, it's, there's a guy right on the far right, uh, far left in green, and I can't tell what direction his head is facing. He might be looking up. The only one who I am sure is looking up is the epileptic kid, and his eyes are rolled back uncontrollably, and he's looking up. Now, hold on. <laughs> like, there's like the glory of the kingdom, up above them, and they are struggling down in the darkness, not able to heal this little boy. Why? Why aren't they able to heal this little kid? They're not looking in the right direction because Jesus is the one who heals and he's right there. But they don't see it. They're focused on problem, focused on problem, except for one person. There's one person in this picture who is not focused on the problem. He is the guy down in the left-hand corner. He has a book open, and he's looking into his book. Now, it's awesome that he's using this book, isn't it? He's, he's probably like looking up what God's word says about healing, but he's not getting the kid healed. Let's go to John chapter 5, verse 39. This is Jesus talking. It's red letters. Search the scriptures, for you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness to me. Yet you will not come to me to have life. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you, that you do not have God's love in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe since you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that only comes from God? Now, I don't know if Raphael knew this picture, but that is entirely what is going on. They are looking for glory in the wrong place. The glory is at the top of the mountain. And they're sitting here trying, trying to figure something out in their heads, aren't they? Now, it is not wrong to search the scriptures. Jesus tells them what they were doing that was wrong. He said this at the very end of Matthew chapter 17. He said, but this kind comes out not without prayer and fasting. What does that mean? That means that you have to actually do something with the truth that you've learned. I'm gonna say it another way. The word has to become flesh. Now, in John chapter 1, verse 14, it says that hologos, the word, sarx agenito, became flesh. Now that was in Jesus Christ, 
The very word of God was acted out as a, in, in a human context, in flesh that you could touch, that you could feel. Now, the very concept of the incarnation is absolutely scandalous, and it's not just because a teenager got pregnant without being married. The reason the incarnation is so scandalous, look at your neighbor right now. Jesus had the same skin. If Jesus was sitting and he is your savior, he is God. And in John 1, 1, 1 John chapter 1, John says that, that we touched him, we held him. That means that Jesus' fingernails got dirty. His hair got long. He was the very truth of God made as tangible as anyone sitting next to you. That is absolutely scandalous because we like spiritual solutions to problems. We don't like to touch things. I especially don't like to touch things. Um, we like... there, But in Jesus Christ... There was no conflict. There was no conflict between his soul and his spirit. There was no conflict between his soul, his spirit, and his body. And in fact, that's intended for us. Let's look at our favorite verse, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23. What does it say? It says, and the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. Holy. The very God of peace sanctify you wholly. The very God of, hold on. The very God of peace sanctify you entirely, spirit, soul, and body. David prayed, Lord God, unite my heart. In other words, unite who I am to fear you so that my body is no longer a hindrance to me, but instead my flesh is just like Jesus's flesh where I take the word and I make it incarnate, where I act out the truth of the word in every single thing I do. And healing then becomes an everyday reality because I'm no longer in conflict with my flesh. Instead, who it was that I think it was Ambrose who said it this way, that our spirits... Our souls and our bodies, they are the mixture in which we find sanctification. That it is not just only my spirit that is able to worship God, but, but with all of me, with all my mind, with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my strength, with everything that is in me, I am going to serve the Lord God of heaven and earth. And there is nothing no thing that is going to be dead in me. Paul said at the end of Romans chapter seven, he said, with my mind, I serve the law of Christ, not with my spirit. He said, with my mind, I serve the law of Christ. My noose in Greek, with my mind, I serve the law of Christ. It says that our bodies are made spiritual in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So that instead of constantly... Let me tell you the day I got fed up with Christianity. I was 15 and I was at my church in Iowa and there was this woman who I admired so, so much. She was about my mom's age and she could pray like anyone I ever knew. It was so amazing to listen to her pray. I loved it. I loved every minute of it. And then one day I, she was standing out in the foyer before service and I heard her say something 
and my world changed. She said, you know what? I just heard it out of the corner of my ear. She said, man, I had so much trouble with my flesh yesterday. I really wanted a brownie. And I thought to myself, I'd like a brownie too. That sounds kind of good. But, oh my gosh, we've been saved. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, who rose from the dead, who conquered down death by death. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, and we are beat by a stupid brownie. Our salvation sucks for the lack of a better word, pardon my Greek. Like, like if, 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 that is, if that is what salvation amounts to, I'm not sure I want it. But if salvation can be a total participation of me in the truth, if I can take the word of God and I can make it incarnate in me, that is something I'm interested in. And that is something I want to do. And I, I, I'll tell you the truth, guys, I, I, I don't have brownie problems. I don't. Why? Because the word just wasn't made flesh in Jesus Christ. It was also made flesh in us when we read the word and then we do it. One last thing from this passage. Notice that Jesus talks about faith like a mustard seed. And sometimes we get the idea that it's like, you know, faith is this tiny little thing that ends up winning the day, but it's only out of sheer perseverance that faith is finally able to prevail and move that mountain. Do you know why faith moves mountains? Like tiny mustard seed faith moves mountains and this didn't shock the disciples because a seed is alive and a, must, and a mountain is not. And alive things move things that are not alive. This is not hard. We make it hard, don't we, Deborah? We make things too hard because alive stuff moves stuff that is not alive. It doesn't even take faith. You just put it in the ground and that tree's roots are gonna grow and the rocks that are in this mountain are gonna start to move. Alive things win every time, and Jesus made us alive. If we're buried in him with if we're buried with him in baptism, we're also raised with him in the newness of life. And I don't for one minute believe that the life of the creator of the cosmos is less than some mountain. Life wins. Inanimate objects do not. This has been physics 101. Like, the, um, I shouldn't be standing here today. When I was 15, my brain shut off. It's kind of weird. Half of it did. For five years, I had three thoughts in five years, and every one of them hurt terribly. I was told by doctors that I would be dead or brain dead by the time I was 20. I turned 30 in January, and I am neither of those things. Hurrah. I wish that I could tell you that I had this really awesome story of how I got healed. 
that I, that I had these scriptures that I read every day and I confessed them over myself. I couldn't even read. There was nothing I could do. My brain was gone. And I, being a person who likes to think, it was very difficult. There was one thing, there is one reason that I am standing here today and I am not dead. And it is just, it was a song I learned in kids' church. My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. And I said to myself, either God is true and he did create everything or he's, a, or he's not and he didn't create everything and then I shouldn't be afraid to die because I'm just going to go into the miasma anyway because God doesn't exist. See, Anselm of Canterbury defined God this way. He said, God is that than which nothing greater can be conceived. And as a 15-year-old kid, I couldn't have said those words, but that was my worldview. There was nothing in my life that was greater than God. And because of that, I'm alive. Because the greatest thing in my life was God. It's kind of sad, isn't it, that we have to convince ourselves that the God who upholds the universe by, by, by the very word of his power, he might not be able to help us. Uh, let me tell you this, God created the entire universe without moving a finger. And David said that when he prayed, God inclined his ear to him. God moved when David prayed, and it didn't even take moving a finger to create the cosmos. You just have to believe God is who he says he is. I found a verse in Haggai. It's not a healing verse. It just says, from December 18th onward, I'll bless you. And I said, okay, God, let's pick that day. I got better on December 18th. I, woke, I went to bed feeling absolutely terrible, couldn't think, couldn't do a thing. I woke up on December 18th and I was just fine. I wish I had picked an earlier day. <laughs> My God is so big, so strong and so mighty. There's nothing he can't do. Nothing. I believe that. I do. I can't figure it out. I don't know how it works. I don't understand how he can absolutely be bigger than every other huge thing that is screaming for his attention. But it's true. He is really, truly, actually bigger than anything, and he can do anything. In fact, you should look this up. The book of Revelation calls God Pantocrator, Almighty, more than any other book in the New Testament. And Pantocrator means this. It means, in fact, this is on constant loop in heaven. There's a constant song. It goes, Agios, 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 Kyrios, Hotheos, Ho Pantocrator, Ho Ein, Kai Ho On, Kai Ho Kaminos. 
It says, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come over and over and over and over and over again for all eternity, past, present, and future. They're declaring the almighty acts of God. Now this word almighty in Greek, pantos means all A-L-L, all. Kratos means power, but it's not power as in like brute force. It's power as in like political power. God holds all the cards, all of them, all the cards. It's basically any power that can move, God holds it. Any power that can do anything in your life, God holds it. And what, and, what is the, and what do the scriptures say? It says that Jesus took captivity captive. In other words, the things that took you cap the things that were taking you captive, he took those things captive. So fear is now fearful. So dead is now death is now dead. And Athanasius the Great said that that was the greatest proof that Christianity was true. The greatest proof against atheism is that Christians are simply not afraid of death. Because their God wins. He trampled down death by death. And the book of Romans says that the only reason death has power is because of fear. If you ever notice, fear is always future because you're not being kicked out of your house right now. You have enough money right now. It's always about what's coming down the road, isn't it? It's always this future thing. And it's taking an image and it's putting an image ahead of God. It's saying that God said the future would be this way, but I disagree. The word confession in Greek is homologumenon. It means to say, actually, I need to correct that. It means we say the same thing. It's not you as an individual, it's us. And who do we say the same thing as? We say the same thing as God. And sometimes it takes us saying the same thing as God again and again and again and again and again and again and again until we actually see things his way. But when we do see things his way, that's when things change. Our God is so big, so strong and so mighty. There's nothing our God cannot do. And we get the absolute privilege of taking his word and not only making it flesh in our lives, but making his word fact in our lives. The word became fact in us. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful. We are so grateful that you are so powerful and that you are on our side. We are so thankful for your word that it is sharper than any two-edged sword and that it wins every single time. We worship you. We praise you. We thank you that healing is, our, is the children's bread. It belongs to us, and it's as simple as just eating. We take what you've given us. We thank you for it, and with it, we, we worship you for the rest of our lives. Thank you so much for the opportunity to live by faith. We worship you. Amen. All right. Well, 702, not too bad. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see you guys on Wednesday. You're dismissed.